It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. Ooh, we got some good stuff to talk about. A very worrisome flaw in the WAN interface of the routers many of us own. That's probably not where you want that problem. Another record DDoS attack and how Google mitigated it. And then a blow-by-blow, step-by-step uh, list of how the newest and meanest kid on the block works. The Bumblebee Malware Loader. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 885, recorded Tuesday, August 23rd, 2022. The Bumblebee Loader. Security Now is brought to you by Thinkst Canary. Detect attackers on your network while avoiding irritating false alarms. Get the alerts that matter. For 10% off and a 60-day money-back guarantee, go to canary.tools slash twit and enter the code twit in the How Did You Hear About Us box. And by Barracuda. Barracuda has identified 13 types of email threats and how cyber criminals use them every day. Phishing, conversation hacking, ransomware... Plus, 10 more tricks cybercriminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Get your free ebook at barracuda.com slash security now. And by Melissa. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Try Melissa's APIs in the developer portal. It's easy to log on, sign up, and start playing in the API sandbox 24-7. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free at melissa.com slash twit. It's time for Security Now, the show where we protect you online with this guy right here, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hello, Steve. Yo, Leo. Great to be with you. Good to see you. As we start into our 18th year. OMG. Wow. So, Who would ever thought that? Not me. Kind of have the hang of it now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so we've got episode 885 uh, for August 23rd. Uh, this one, I think a lot of our listeners are going to find this one interesting, I hope, um, because a security firm did a complete step-by-step, this is what we saw happening with a brand new piece of malware, which is called Bumblebee, due to the name of the first DLL, which contains it, which it arranges to get loaded. Um, and, and as we'll see, uh, this is not a Bumblebee that you want your enterprise to get stung with. Basically, this thing is taking over the previous means for getting malware onto people's, like some poor, unwitting person who clicked a phishing email uh, that in an enterprise, this thing gets in and it never lets go. So, it, and it's one thing just to kind of wave our arms around and say, oh, you know, malware. But when you, the reason I wanted to take our listeners through this is that you, you really, it sort of gives you chills when you think about what this thing does. And it is also just a textbook perfect example of the new approach, which is being called living off the land, where 
rather than bringing a bunch of stuff in, which has the danger of tripping security alarms, increasingly we're seeing advanced malware using and abusing existing code on machines, thus the term living off the land. Um, Anyway, that's at the end. We're going to start off with a bit of fun over the most tweeted by far wacky news item ever uh well i've maybe well now okay not we've had some wacky ones so probably not ever but still <laughs> definitely it, it swamped my twitter feed now i'm trying to think what could it be because there have been so oh, many wacky stories you, this week you, you will know i heard you talking about yeah. it i think maybe on sunday anyway uh we're then going to get serious with a very worrisome flaw which likely exists in the wan facing interface of the routers that many of us probably own we've got uh, a new record having been broken for ddos attacks which google managed to fend off uh, and that's broken by a large margin we have both chrome and apple dealing with uh, if not emergency then at least high priority software updates to squash some zero days that were in active exploit We've got another major software repository tightening up its security against software supply chain attacks. And then after sharing just a few but powerful bits of feedback from our listeners, we're going to step through, as I said, this the operation and actions of the newest and meanest kid on the block with the emergence of a powerful malware loader that, that uh, is called Bumblebee. And, and, of course, a great picture of the week, too. Nice. Bumblebee, bumblebee, fly away home. Oh, no, that's uh, Ladybug, <laughs> Ladybug. That's a different one. Uh, our show today brought to you by something that's going to help keep you in your enterprise safe. Canary. I'm sure you have secured your perimeter, locked everything down right. And, but still the bad guys get in. They, they still get in. And then do you know if they've gotten in? How do you know? If there's one thing we've learned from the last year and and many shows on security now is that you've got to make it a priority to layer the security of your network. And one of those layers, absolutely, probably at the heart and center of it, the Thinkst Canary. I've got mine right here. I'll show you. Oh, somebody glued it down. John, why'd you glue it down? (laughs) I'll, I'll unglue it real briefly to show you. This is the Thinkst Canary. It's kind of unassuming. John probably thought, oh, it's a hard drive. or You know, it looks like an external hard drive. But it's not. It's a honeypot. It is the bestest ever honeypot. Easy to configure. Easy to deploy. It can impersonate pretty much anything. And then when an attacker is wandering around your network, they don't look vulnerable. They look valuable. They look like something they're going to want to explore. But the minute they do, your canary... We'll say hello, not to them, but to you. Say, I got one. I got one. So it's like, a, you know, a honeypot is, 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 is an attractive nuisance, but it's not a nuisance for you. It's for, the, it's for the hackers. When attackers browse Active Directory for file servers, when they explore file shares, when they look through different hard drives, they'll be looking for documents. They'll try default passwords against network devices and web services. They'll scan for open services across the network. And your Things Canary can look like any of that. All the things hackers want to get to. You can deploy them throughout your entire network. 
You can make them look identical to a router, a switch, a NAS server. That's what this one is, a Synology NAS server. And when I say identical, it's got a MAC address, a Synology MAC address. It's got the login for DSM-7. Looks exactly like the real thing. Nobody's going to be able to tell the difference, but the minute somebody does log into this, I'm going to get an alert, and I'm going to get it in the way I want it. Uh, a, a meaningful alert that's going to help me understand somebody is in the network. It could be a Windows server. It could be a Linux box. You can have one or two services judiciously lit up, or you can turn it on as a Christmas tree. It's up to you. And if you change your mind or you want to reconfigure, it takes seconds to do that. You get a, a, a an interface to it, just like a website. You could drop downs. You could pick whatever you want. Another thing you could do with your Things Canary that I love is you can put fake files on them and name them in ways that get hackers' attentions. And you could actually take those files, they call them canary tokens, spread them throughout your network, just scatter them on hard drives everywhere. You know, employee information or payroll information.xls, something like that. Hacker can't stop themselves. They're going to open that up. The minute they do, you will know. You can enroll your canary in Active Directory. As soon as attackers investigate they give themselves away, you're instantly notified. Tiny tripwires into your organization. You can drop in hundreds of places. And if there's somebody there, they're going to get tripped. Canaries are designed to be installed and configured in minutes. You don't have to think about them again. In fact, they're, they're no false alarms. So if you get an alert, uh, you know something's going on. Canary can notify you as you like. So email, text message. Uh, with every canary, you get a console. You can do that. You've got Slack. They support that. Webhooks means they support a whole lot of stuff. Uh, of course, it supports Syslog. They even have an API, so you can write your own little canary notifier if you want. You won't be inundated by false alarms. You'll just get those messages that really matter. You know, data breaches typically happen through your staff, social engineering. Uh, when they do, it's very common that companies aren't even aware they've been breached. Because the bad guys, they don't want to announce themselves right away, right? They want to explore. They want to learn. They want to exfiltrate vital information, that kind of thing. On average, it takes 191 days for a company to know there's been a data breach. That's six months. That's crazy. Canary is, is the way to solve that problem. It's like the canary in the coal mine. And it's been created by people who really understand this stuff. They've trained companies militaries and governments on how to break into networks they know they use that knowledge to build the canary you'll find canaries deployed all over the world they're one of the best tools against data breaches here's what you do go to canary.tools slash twit canary.tools slash twit if you use the code twit and how did you hear about us box 10 percent off the price forever for life you probably want to know about pricing. I'll give you an example. Sometimes people have a you know a few canaries. Many big institutions have dozens, maybe hundreds of canaries. Uh, but let's say you wanted five, which would be good for a small business, perhaps seventy five hundred bucks a year. Five canaries, your own hosted console, as I mentioned. All the upgrades, all the maintenance, all the support for that whole year. And again, ten percent off if you use the offer code Twit. And how did you hear about us, Box? I know you're going to love your things to canary. But if you're not happy, you can always return your canaries within two months for a 100% money-back guarantee. Full refund. So two months is a long time. that really give you a chance to try it. But don't get alarmed if you don't hear from your canary. That's good. <laughs> a silent canary is a good canary. It's, it's when you get a notice, and I tell you, it's happened to us. When you get that text message, somebody is in your system, that's when you'll be very glad you have canary. Canary.tools 
slash twit. Enter the code twit and how did you hear about us, Bucks? Thank you, Canary. They've been longtime supporters of uh, security now. They love what you're doing, Steve. Um, they're really a, a great organization. Uh, we talk to them all the time, and I, I couldn't recommend them more highly. Canary.tools slash twit. This is a video and of the week this week, Steve. It is. I, I should say, though, that if you're not convinced yet that something like a canary is what you need, uh, you will be by the end of this podcast. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> because because it is exactly the sort of thing that the guys behind Bumblebee Loader oh, yeah. Yeah. would trip over. Right. And, and, in fact, the timeline, I was, I was thinking about this already, that there's enough manual side to this that if you did receive notification of an of early strange behavior th- there would be time oh, that's and good that's so good. anyway uh, it does play perfectly into today's topic so yeah we have a video of the week i had not seen this before i don't know uh, youtube I was oh I I was looking for something else and it it came up and said you might think this is interesting I thought oh, it's a little freaky how correct you are Google uh, so we're playing it now and I I played it for Lori and she's like what <laughs> uh, last year my trainer said I saw a UFO last night I said you did what did it look like he described what you're seeing right now and I said oh that ain't no UFO what is it Steve. So, uh, it is, it, uh, it's, and uh, describing it can't do it justice. I mean, it, it would be, I guess we're sort of used to stuff happening near Earth. So maybe it wouldn't be that surprising, but it's extremely cool. Uh, what you're showing is a video of the light reflected, the sunlight reflected off of a train. Of 53 Starlink satellites, which had been, and this was taken a couple days ago, which had been launched from Florida on Friday. And this is this has been going on for a while as Elon's company is getting the Starlink constellation of satellites up in the air. But, I mean, the idea of, and, and this is just some random guy with a cell phone uh, recording this. Uh, the, I mean, and it is like it's a series of dots spaced somewhat evenly. I mean, it's kind of perfect that they're not perfectly even because, you know, I guess these have been released from the the transport vehicle that yeah. got them up into orbit. They do this every time. They fly in formation and then they deploy to their locations. But when they first come off of uh, the – it's like a MERV. You know, when they first come off of the rocket, they're all in formation. Isn't that uh, cool? It's just too cool. It's a train, so, they call it. Anyway – Nothing. Yes, no, no, nothing to do with security, but just something very cool. Yeah. And if you ever, you know, you can see it. It's it's happening all the time. They've they've done many many launches. So if you get a chance, it's worth seeing. So since we're on the topic of nothing to do with security, I needed to respond to what was by far the most tweeted to me news item in a long time, and our listeners who are naturally on top of their game felt about this pretty much as I do. For more than two and a half decades, the highly respected Microsoft engineer, Raymond Chen, has been blogging. Oh, I do know what you're talking about. (laughs) I love this. I knew you would. Last, Last Tuesday, he posted a blog entry that was just so weird that everyone picked up on it. 
Raymond's posting was titled, Janet Jackson had the power to crash laptop computers. Now, the fact that this was assigned a CVE number, the CVE 2022-38392, has apparently lent it more credibility, or at least more notoriety, I, you know, than I think it deserves. And the fact that the CVE refers to Raymond's blog as its sole reference seems to be somewhat self-referential. Raymond cites the CVE, which cites Raymond. Uh, I'm actually wondering whether it might have been a slow blog week and Raymond was, you know, may have needed a bit of filler. So his blog post opens with two lines. A colleague of mine shared a story from Windows XP product support. Okay, well, that wasn't recent, presumably. Anyway, he said, A major computer manufacturer discovered that playing the music video for Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation would crash certain models of laptops. Okay, <laughs> so from, from the CVE, we learn that this was, quote, certain models of laptops circa 2005. So... 17 years ago, the CVE's formal description says, because, you know, if it's a CVE, you need a formal description. It says a certain unnamed 5400 RPM OEM hard drive as shipped with laptop PCs in approximately 2005 allows physically proximate attackers to cause a denial of service you know, device, it says device malfunction and system crash via a resonant frequency attack with the audio signal from the Rhythm Nation music video. <laughs> if this wasn't April, if, I mean, it's not April 1st, right? So, really? So, we can see now why the tech press thought that this was just too wonderful to pass up. On the other hand, we have a CVE that was apparently issued based upon what amounts to a friend told me rumor. No mention of the maker model of the 5400 RPM OEM hard disk that should be kept away from discos. So this begs the question of just how low the bar has been set for issuing CVEs. You know, this is not an attack, although... Okay, there are a vocal group of people who feel that any playing of Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation should qualify as a form of terrorism. Uh, and neither is it a bug that needs to be fixed, nor malware that needs to be expunged. There's no action that can or should be taken today. It's from 17 years ago. So why give this, you know, heard it from an XP support guy a CVE in 2022. I have no idea. Of course, those who've been following this podcast will recall that video, which was also cited in some of the coverage of this Rhythm Nation hard drive DDoS attack, where somebody, and we show this on the podcast, right, was monitoring the dynamic throughput of an array of spinning hard disk drives while screaming at the array at the top of his lungs. And sure enough, the throughput visibly dropped during the screaming. 
Uh, and as we noted at the time, the throughput dropped because modern mechanical hard drives have crammed their tracks so closely together. I mean, actually, they're now overlapping each other. That's like, you know, this is what engineers do, right? They engineer DRAM so tightly that neighboring rows inter interfere and cause bits to flip well they're there they've also crammed hard drive tracks so closely together that they are, have become quite sensitive to any exogenous vibration and in fact the way they're mounted in the server chassis can be critical now raymond of course also referred to the famous video showing that 1940 collapse of the tacoma narrows bridge in the same way that Rhythm Nation was able to rub some hard drives the wrong way back in 2005, the coincidentally timed gusts of wind through the Tacoma Narrows rubbed the bridge the wrong way until it disintegrated. Anyway, I felt that this podcast needed to at least acknowledge this story that everyone tweeted to me over the last week uh, and that most of the tech press had a lot of fun talking about, uh, you know, as did we here. <laughs> In a not-so-fun and much more relevant issue, <clears throat> during one of the recent DEF CON presentations in Las Vegas, a team of four Argentinian researchers from the cybersecurity company Faraday Security detailed their discovery of what was subsequently classified as a CVSS 9.8 zero-click remote code execution vulnerability in the interface stack which Realtek provides in the SDK for their, for their hardware's use with the very popular open-source ECOS operating system. Since they had previously responsibly disclosed their discovery and since Realtek had patched the flaw in March... Their presentation during DEF CON provided full disclosure of all the technical details needed to replicate the attack. After all, it's been a few months. Consequently, there is now exploit code released publicly for this critical security vulnerability affecting networking devices which use Realtek's RTL 819X system on a chip. And those devices number, unfortunately, in the tens of millions. Being, you know, of the turnkey consumer plug it in and forget it variety, there's little chance that most of these tens of millions of devices are ever going to be updated. Many will have long since gone out of warranty. Since this Realtek system on a chip, RTL819X, is incredibly popular, we're talking about devices that many of us probably already have since the chips are used by more than 60, 60 vendors, including Austec, Belkin, Buffalo, D-Link, Edimax, Trentnet, and Zyxel. And again, zero-click on the WAN interface. The vulnerability presents on the WAN interface. And because it's a stack-based buffer overflow, it allows for no operator needed 
compromise of the host upon receiving a UDP packet from the public Internet. The DEFCON presentation left nothing to the imagination. The SIP, you know, SIP protocol, the, the ALG, the Application Layer Gateway function that rewrites SDP data, has a stack-based buffer overflow. This allows an attacker to remotely execute their code without authentication via a crafted SIP packet that contains malicious SDP data, which ends up getting written onto the stack and then executed. Now, we've spoken about the abuse of application layer gateways in the past. Remember that ALGs are essentially enhancements to the baseline NAT routing functionality, which allows NAT to handle what would otherwise be NAT's interference with the details of specific NAT-unfriendly protocols. The simplest example is the original FTP protocol, where the client instructs the server which port it has opened to receive the reverse connection from the FTP server. The router's application layer gateway monitors the outgoing data, sees the port being specified by the FTP client by looking in the packet as it's leaving the router, and then either opens that port in its WAN side interface so that the remote FTP server can connect in or modifies the outbound port specification to a port it wishes to open. The point being that it allows a NAT router to become transparent to the otherwise NAT hostile FTP protocol. Now, in this case, the trouble exists in the application layer gateway logic for handling SIP, that's the session initiation protocol used in VOIP systems. It's not clear whether disabling SIP's ALG, if that's even an option in the router, would help. Johannes Ulrich, who is the dean of research at SANS, says that a remote attacker could exploit the vulnerability for the following actions. They could crash the device. Okay, that's easy. Execute arbitrary code, a little more tricky. Establish backdoors for persistence. That's what you want to do. Reroute or intercept network traffic, you know, turning it into a proxy. Basically, take over any vulnerable router. And he warned that if an exploit for CVE 2022-27255 were turned into a worm, it could spread throughout the Internet in minutes. Now, while Johannes is technically correct about a worm, as I've been saying recently, a massive worm attack no longer makes any sense. They made sense back when email viruses just existed to see whether they could. But in today's world, it's about money. Anyone who's capable of writing a working worm would also be capable of using the router as a proxy to bounce malicious traffic or to quietly mine cryptocurrency or to enslave the router into the service of one of today's massive botnets, as we'll see in the next story. Or to pivot 
into the network behind the router to see whether there might be something juicy worth attacking somewhere on the router's LAN. For their part, the four security researchers said that devices using firmware built around Realtek ECOS SDK before March of 2022 are vulnerable, period, full stop. Users are vulnerable even if they do not expose any admin interface functionality. Attackers may use a single UDP packet to an arbitrary port to exploit the vulnerability. And this vulnerability will likely affect routers the most, but some IoT devices built around Realtek's SDK may also be affected. Realtek's own vulnerability report, I went looking for it and found it, is two pages and provides no guidance There's no list of manufacturers or makes and models of affected products, nothing. There's no action that any responsible end user can take. There's no obvious way to know whether any particular router or IoT device might be affected. The only recourse would be to proactively verify that your router is running the latest firmware available for it from its vendor and to hope that they care enough to update their firmware for the model of router you have. If your system can run one of the alternative router firmware systems, such as DDWRT, I think that's what I would do. That would be one way to move it to safety into a platform that is being continuously kept up to date. So many of these sorts of things have come out through the years problems that are unlikely to ever be fixed that it's possible to imagine the what must exist that the sort of massive known vulnerability database that both nation states and sufficiently large criminal enterprises must now be maintaining you want to get into which organization what equipment do they have on their border Look up all of the known exploits over time that have been available against it and start working down through the list until you get in. 17 years ago, back when we were launching this podcast, that scenario would have seemed like pure speculative fiction. Today, I'd lay money down that such databases must now exist all over the world. And it's difficult to see how this changes. Nothing that we're like, there are no plans in in motion right now because anything would take a while to have any effect. Nothing is going on that's going to like change the way the world is working now. And the way the world is working now is deeply broken. So those who can afford to be truly aware and concerned about security could choose to use a non-consumer router on their borders, you know, such as something running PFSense, as I do at my locations. But that still leaves the much larger majority of end-user consumers potentially vulnerable for decades to previous old vulnerabilities. And every month, more of these surface. And Routers are not being updated with nearly the speed uh, or reliability that they should be.
And as I said, we don't seem to be taking any action. Okay. Uh, 46, (laughs) it's hard to say this, 46 million requests per second. After standing up to the largest ever DDoS attack on behalf of one of its Cloud Armor Adaptive Protection customers, Google said it had blocked a record-breaking HTTPS-based DDoS query attack that hit at its peak a whopping 46 million requests per second. That puts it 76% higher than the 26 million RPS attack, which we talked about previously, which had been mitigated by Cloudflare in June. Google chose not to disclose the target of this attack, you know, its customer behind this protection, but said that it believes the attack was carried out with the help of the Maris botnet. To put the scale of this attack in perspective, it's an HTTPS request rate equivalent to receiving all of the requests to the Wikipedia domain, which is one of the top traffic domains in the world, which Wikipedia would receive during one 24-hour period. Take all of those requests and compress them into just 10 seconds. It's that much traffic. And this thing went on for quite a while. Google's report of the attack, and, we've, and Leo, thank you, we got the, 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 the chart showing the shape of the attack peaking at 46 million RPS. Google's report of the attack contains lots of interesting details. Here's what they shared. They said starting around 9.45 a.m. Pacific time on June 1st, an attack of more than 10,000 requests per second began targeting our customers' HTTPS load balancer. Eight minutes later, the attack grew to 100,000 requests per second. They said Cloud Armor Adaptive Protection detected the attack and generated an alert containing the attack signature by assessing the traffic across several dozen features and attributes. The alert included a recommended rule to block on the malicious signature. They said our customers' network security team deployed the Cloud Armor recommended rule into their security policy, and it immediately started blocking the attack traffic. In the two minutes that followed, the attack began to ramp up growing from 100,000 requests per second to a peak of 46 million requests per second. Since Cloud Armor was already blocking the attack traffic, the target workload continued to operate normally, meaning their site wasn't adversely affected, it stayed on the air, everything was fine. Over the next few minutes, the attack started to decrease in size ultimately ending 69 minutes later at 10.54 a.m. Presumably, the attacker determined 
they were not having the desired impact while incurring significant expenses to execute the attack. Now, I would argue that point. I suspect that the attack cost the attackers exactly nothing other than the exposure of the IP addresses of their fleet of infected consumer routers hosting the Maris botnet, but maybe not even that. They said, in addition to its unexpectedly high volume of traffic, the attack had other noteworthy characteristics. There were 5,256 source IPs from 132 countries contributing to the attack. The top four countries, Brazil, India, Russia, and Indonesia, contributed approximately 31% of the total attack traffic. The attack leveraged encrypted requests, HTTPS, which could have taken, which could have, which, I'm sorry, which would have taken added computing resources to generate. Again, Google appears to be deliberately missing the whole point. If there were 5,256 observed source IPs, then that crypto burden will have been well distributed across the globe. And then we learn that HTTPS pipelining was also in use, further limiting the crypto overhead. Google said, although terminating the encryption was necessary to inspect the traffic and effectively mitigate the attack, the use of HTTP pipelining required Google to to complete relatively few TLS handshakes. Right. And thus also much less burden on the attackers. It required them, the attackers, to similarly terminate relatively few TLS handshakes. The attackers were establishing a single TLS connection, then attempting to flood that connection with pipelined HTTP requests. There's no reason to believe that any IP that's flooding HTTPS requests down the pipe will ever generate a valid request. So those IPs should have, and hopefully were, simply dynamically blacklisted. They said approximately 22%, which was 1,169 of the source IPs, corresponded to Tor exit nodes, although the request volume coming from those nodes represented just 3% of the attack traffic. Now, let's stop there for a second. That's interesting. 22%, so just shy of one-fifth, of the total source IPs were coming from Tor, yet its traffic was just 3%, which is what we'd expect, right? I mean, Tor incurs a huge latency burden and and bandwidth burden on its user in return for giving you some hope for privacy on the Internet. Anyway, sort of an interesting data point. They said, while we believe Tor participation in the attack was incidental, Due to the nature of the vulnerable services, even at 3% of the peak, 
which would have been greater than 1.3 million requests per second, our analysis shows that Tor exit nodes can send a significant amount of unwelcome traffic to web applications and services. And finally, the geographic distribution and types of unsecured services leveraged to generate the attack matches the Maris family of attacks. And I'm sure they couldn't resist poking at a few of those IPs and confirming that, yep, in fact, that was Maris. Anyway, they said, known for its massive attacks that have broken DDoS records, the Maris method abuses unsecured proxies to obfuscate the true origin of the attacks. So, yes, if it was Maris, then they were bouncing their traffic through proxies like routers that have been compromised. Remember, we've talked about how if a router exposes uh, its uh, plug-and-play port or the plug-and-play service to the WAN interface, it's possible for someone to just set up a proxy and say, you know, send any traffic incoming to that IP and use it to reflect traffic. Anyway, so we know that attackers were bouncing their botnets traffic through intermediate proxies in order to protect the IPs of their actual bot agents, which they did not want revealed. So I couldn't help, another just random point, I couldn't help but note that in their redacted report, because Google post in, in their in their posting of this, they had screenshots which were redacted to hide the identity of their customer. They used text blurring Uh-oh. to obscure the identity. <laughs> Whoops. Uh-oh. <laughs> we all know. You know, remember, we we covered it here in some beautiful work that we covered a while back. Uh, we learned the that blurring text is not secure. We learned it doesn't work. If someone is interested in learning what original tech lies behind the blurred instance, they can identify the details of the typography from all of the examples of non-blurred text, then iteratively guess the text that's behind the blur, employ the same blurring of their guess text, and then compare the result of the two blurrings, one they control and one they do not. Mm. We'll leave this as an exercise for the listener. Yes. (laughs) Google's report then switches into marketing mode, bragging about their technology, which anyone would have to agree works. So we're now living in a world where those whose Internet web services must remain online in the face of attacks will need to bear the added cost of the privilege of doing so by putting themselves behind Google or Cloudflare or one of these big pipe DDoS protector services because otherwise you just, you, you I mean, aiming that much traffic at anyone else I mean, it's just like, what's the point? This right. is like, you know, just <laughs> stomping on, on a gnat using a planet. It just <laughs> would be ridiculous. And Leo, I'm going to take a sip of water. Let's tell okay. our listeners Let's do it. Uh, why they're glad they're here. Yeah, we, uh, we use Amazon uh, for DDoS. Uh, they also, yeah. Anybody who has a lot of bandwidth uh, can, can do that. DDoS protection. Cloudflare right. does a great job. I think this is... 
as much a war of press releases as anything else because I think Cloudflare just recently had a almost as big <laughs> DDoS yeah, in mitigation ju- in, 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 in June. June. Right, yep. yeah. So yeah. it's like, well, our DDoS is bigger than yours. <laughs> <laughs> our show today, hey, we always talk about this stuff. It's an important uh, subject, security, right? And uh, if you are uh, interested in security, if you're in the business, uh, you know the name Barracuda. This episode of Security Now brought to you by Barracuda. In a recent email trends survey, 43% of respondents said they have already been victims of a spear phishing attack. Almost half. But only 23% say they have dedicated spear phishing protection. You know, if you're relying on your employees to recognize and ignore spear phishing attacks, good luck. (laughs) How are you keeping your email secure? Barracuda has identified 13 distinct types of email threats. And they've documented how they're used every day by cyber criminals. Phishing and conversation hacking and ransomware. Plus 10 more tricks cyber criminals use to steal money from your company or personal information from your employees and customers. Are you protected? Are you protected against all 13 types? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Email cybercrime is becoming more sophisticated and attacks are more difficult to prevent. They'll use social engineering. And, of course, one of the big tricks is to use urgency or fear to get their victims to respond without thinking. Social engineering attacks, including spear phishing and business email compromise, cost businesses on average $130,000 per incident. Uh, That's the average. Could be a lot more. As dem- I'll give you an example. As demand for COVID-19 tests increased at the start of the year, Barracuda researchers saw a related increase in COVID-19 test-related phishing attacks, 521% increase between October and January of last year. As public interest rises, of course, for example, in cryptocurrency, the opportunity for attacks becomes ripe. You know, when last year, when the Bitcoin value was going up and up and up and up, increased almost 400%. The impersonation attacks to take advantage of it increased 192% in the same period. And I can bet that as crypto's going down, you're going to see attacks, you know, immediately shift to something that works with that. You know, they're move, they're fast moving. In 2020, the Internet Crime Complaint Center, IC3, received 19,000 business email compromise and email account compromise complaints. 19,000 with adjusted losses of over $1.8 billion. That was two years ago. I bet it's a lot worse today. And, of course, securing email at the gateway, as many of us do, is great, but it's not enough anymore. It's still important to leverage gateway security, of course, to prevent against uh, traditional attacks, you know, viruses coming in over the zero-day ransomware, of course, spam and other threats. But your gateway is useless against spear phishing, against targeted attacks. Protection has to happen at the inbox level, and you're going to need some sophisticated tools to detect it, AI and machine learning, because these threats are a moving target. You can't just say, well, filter against that. You've got to have something that's smart enough to look and say, yeah, that's that's spearfishing. Look, you listen to this show because you want this information. I've got a place you can get lots more. The Barracuda Report is available free right now for you. 13 email threat types you need to know about right now. You'll see how cyber criminals are getting more and more sophisticated every day and how you can build the best protection for your business, your data, and your people with Barracuda. 
Find out about the 13 email threat types you need to know about and how Barracuda can provide complete email protection for your teams, your customers, and your reputation. You get that free ebook at barracuda.com slash security now. Barracuda, B-A-R-R-A-C-U-D-A, barracuda.com slash security now. Thank you, Barracuda, for supporting the show. And uh, you support us when you go to that address. That way they know you saw it here. Barracuda.com slash security now. Barracuda, your journey secured. And once again, I we have a coincidental collision of sponsor and topic for the podcast because the entire entry point for this bumblebee loader is spear phishing. Of course. Of and course. As we'll see, I wrote I wrote all this before I knew you didn't who know. Was be advertising. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it is ultimately as we'll see that hapless person in the enterprise who clicks on an email yeah. and 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 takes some actions which will clearly specify that begins this entire thing, and it just must be keeping IT people oh. up at night and owners. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so uh, last Tuesday, Google updated uh, our Chrome browser for desktops to squash an actively exploited high-severity zero-day flaw in the wild. It's tracked as CVE 2022, uh, 2856. That's only four digits. Interesting. Uh, You know, as we know, CVEs are allocated now in blocks, and so various people you know, allocate them as they choose. So the fact that it's four digits or, or, and a low number doesn't really tell us anything. Anyway, the issue is a case of what they termed insufficient validation of untrusted input, which, you know, is like Microsoft saying, yeah, that was a security bypass. Okay, right. Uh, security researchers uh, Ashley Shen and Christian Riesel uh, both on Google's tag team, remember the, you know their threat analysis group, are credited with reporting the flaw last month on the ni- on the nineteenth of July. As usual, there's no upside for Google to sharing anything more with us beyond please be sure that your version of Chrome now ends in dot one zero two. Uh, they did add that, quote, Google is aware that an exploit for CVE 2022-2856 exists in the wild. Um, in addition to stomping on that fifth of the year actively exploited flaw, that update to blah, 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 dot 102 addressed 10 other security flaws, most of which relate to the most common use-after-free bugs that we just keep encountering in this code, uh, which appear in various Chrome uh, components. They also fixed a heat buffer overflow uh, in the downloads portion of Chrome. So this is number five this year. Previously, we had a a, the, the first of the year was a use after free in animation. We had two type confusion bugs in V8 and a heat buffer overflow in WebRTC. So, and now with number five being a rather vague, insufficient validation of untrusted input. Okay. Anyway, so if you're using one of the non Chrome Chromium siblings, you know, Edge, Brave, Opera, or Vivaldi, 
just be sure to keep yourself updated there, too, because they would all be susceptible until they're updated with the latest update to Chromium, you know, their common core. And, not to be left behind, last Wednesday, Apple released high-priority security updates for iOS, iPadOS, and macOS platforms. That This was to remediate a pair, two, zero-day vulnerabilities which were being exploited by threat actors to, comprise, to compromise Apple's uh, devices. There was uh, the CVE ending in 32893, which was an out-of-bounds bug in WebKit, which could lead to the execution of arbitrary code by processing especially crafted web content. And 32894, an out-of-bounds bug in the OS kernel that could be abused by a malicious application to execute arbitrary code with the highest privileges. So, uh, again, these are not theoretical these were found being used to, you know, perpetrate malicious ends. So that was pushed quickly, and all of our devices, I got little notices everywhere. So Apple clearly felt that this was worth, you know, getting out into the world. They said that they had addressed the issues with improved bounds checking. So that's good because those were out-of-bounds bugs. So <laughs> you want to do a little more bounds checking to keep them from going out of bounds. Uh, and they said also that they were aware that the vulnerabilities may have been actively exploited. Uh-huh. And please update immediately before you do anything else. So as usual, they didn't disclose anything additional either regarding these attacks or the identities of the bad guys who, you know, may have been using them. Although as usual, it's almost certain that they were, you know, involved in targeted intrusions. Again, you're not going to spray this around because you want to keep it quiet and get as much use out of it as you can. And since we're counting zero days so far this year, this latest update brings Apple's total of actively exploited zero days to six for the year. As with Chrome, uh, we had four below, uh, four before these latest pair. Uh, and we've covered them all in the podcast in the past. So anyway, two more added to the list and iOS, iPadOS and macOS Monterey all need to be updated. As we know, Ruby Gems is the official package manager for the Ruby programming language. And in a welcome response to the increasing threat and prevalence of supply chain attacks, the Ruby Gems repository has become the latest platform following NPM and PyPy to require multi-factor authentication for its more popular package maintainers. Specifically, owners of Gems, as they are referred to, having more than 180 million total downloads are now, as of last Monday, August 15th, required to enable multi-factor authentication. The Ruby Gems management said, quote, users in this category who do not have MFA enabled on the UI and API or UI and gem sign-in level will not be able to edit their profile on the web, 
perform privileged actions, for example, push and yank gems or add and remove gem owners, or sign in on the command line until they configure MFA. In other words, you know, they'll log in, try to do anything, and they're going to get a, nope, sorry, you're too popular. Uh, you've, you've got more than 180 million downloads. Okay, you should be proud of that. But just, you know, come on. Let's do multi-factor authentication here. And as gem downloads approach that magic mandatory 180 million count, as soon as downloads pass 165 million cumulative, their maintainers will receive reminders to turn on multi-factor authentication before the download count hits the magic 180 million, at which point it, they, they no longer have a choice. So this is further welcome, uh, of course, in the you know package e- ecosystem to improve the past's casual approach to software supply chain security, which, you know, no one took that seriously until we started discovering lots of malicious packages in our repositories. So, as we know, adversaries are increasingly setting their sights on open source code repositories with attacks on NPM and PyPy having snowballed by a combined 289% since 2018. Researchers from Checkmarks, Kaspersky, and Sync um, have all uncovered a large number of malicious packages in PyPy that could be abused to conduct DDoS attacks and harvest browser passwords, as well as Discord and Roblox credential and payment information. So now, Ruby Gems joins the ranks of NPM and PyPy, which are all tightening their security. And, you know, yay. I mean, it's it's nice to see this happening. It's clearly something that is easily done. We, As I said before, we still don't have an answer to the IoT problem, to the, the this problem that we've got very sophisticated uh, devices packaged in $5 light switches and plugs with no one standing behind them where vulnerabilities are being found by researchers and there's just no infrastructure in place to fix them. And it's not like this is like slowing down. The rate at which this stuff is being created is accelerating and there's nothing on the horizon that suggests a way to fix this. And even if there were, or once there is, it will still take decades for it to work its way through. So, um, bad. Okay, we have some uh, very neat closing the loop bits. Um, Thomas Tom Jack tweeted, he said, Hey, Steve, when you register a domain... You do have the option to register a technical contact as well as the owner. He said, when I have registered domains in the past for friends, I always make sure they are listed as the domain owner and myself only as the technical contact. He says, yes, it's still under my registrar account, but at least that shows proof of ownership and they could probably transfer it to a new account at the same or different registrar should I get hit by a bus <laughs> unexpectedly. 
So I, I'm so glad that Thomas thought to remind me and us of that, and I want to acknowledge that several other of our listeners sent notes to the same effect, which I saw, and thanked them. Uh, of course, that's the case, and it had completely slipped my mind. Domain registration records provide for completely separate owner, administrative, and technical contacts. I'm so used to always pointing all three of those at myself that I completely forgot the power of the flexibility that they could provide. Now, this, of course, begs the question, what would a domain registrar do if the assigned owner of a domain, which is, after all, just a name and email address, wished to take control of the domain in the event that the admin or technical contact was unresponsive? Would that provide the degree of safety that we're looking for? I don't know. In an attempt to answer that question definitively, I found an ICANN FAQ, you know, an, an FAQ. Question 12 that they asked themselves read, I can't access my domain name or my domain name management account because the domain name was registered by someone else such as my web developer or administrative contact, what now? And their answer, ICANN's answer, is, quote, you may not be able to access the domain name if you are not the administrative contact slash registrant of record of the domain name. You should contact the individual or entity who registered the domain name to obtain access credentials slash details or update the domain name's administrative contact slash registrant of record. Then they said in the second paragraph, you should contact your registrar right away if your domain name manager slash administrative contact is unreachable, has gone out of business, etc., to update your information. Once you're able to become the administrative contact slash registrant of record, this will ensure that you have full control of managing your domain name and allow you to find someone else to help you manage your domain name if you so choose. It's a good idea to keep a record of your domain name management credentials at all times, even if you choose to outsource some administrative slash management duties to a third party. Okay, so the formal names of the of the thing of the three things you can register is there's the owner, there's administrative, and there's technical contact. And, uh, you know, in ICANN's response, they keep referring to administrative contact. Well, okay, that, there's, that's one of the three, right? Administrative. But there's also owner. So uh, I, I dug around some more, and I couldn't find anything formal or official. But anyway, I just wanted to put on the record that a bunch of our listeners said, Hey, Gibson, did you forget about that? It's like, yeah, I did. So thank you. I don't uh, think it solves anything. It's the same issue. Because, in effect, yeah. I can't say, well, if you could prove to your registrar that you're you, which is what it would require to change the administrative owner, well, then I guess we'll give you credit. I mean, it's it's putting it back on the registrar. I don't think it solves anything. But So I, well, so what I was suggesting last week was that, that we needed 
like that the system needed to be upgraded to provide something like a you know a, a next in kin sort of effect so that there would be some means for dealing with a sudden lack of management so 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 our listeners said hey you know you do have three things in a domain name registration record but and so it would be possible for you to ask the person who's managing your domain name to point one or more of those at you rather than all at him so you know it's something but it's again you still don't have like login no access yeah. to the registration yeah. to yeah. the registration record itself plus you need the cooperation of this person who is presumptively not cooperating right <laughs> that's the problem if they're cooperating this is why you should register it yourself i think but you know that's yeah. what i always say so do it yourself don't trust them okay so uh a listener dagen uh he said well i i should preface this with i am truly flattered honored and humbled that this podcast has had as much impact on people's lives through the years as it has. You know, I, I suppose that my true love for technology, and Leo, you share that love with me, you always have, uh, and computing can be a bit infectious. So in that sense, I'm gratified that we've had the opportunity to infect so many of our listeners with this bug. <laughs> infect? Okay, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, All right. And it's a bug that, that I've been in, in its grip throughout my entire life. So this tweet from Dagen really hit home. Uh, so I asked its author if I could share it, and I received his permission. So he wrote just to me by DM. He said, Steve. I wanted to privately drop you a brief personal note of thanks. I've been listening to Security Now religiously since 2011, and I truly believe your weekly show has had a significant impact on my career and, as such, my life. When I started listening, I was a happy nerd that loved the idea of security. Nine years in, I discovered and was credited for identifying two CVEs in a Red Hat mm. product. Last year, I was credited for two more CVEs in a SUSE product, and this year, yet another vulnerability in a second SUSE product. And finally, just last weekend, I was fortunate enough to have the opportunity to present at DEF CON, where I demonstrated chaining three of five vulnerabilities together to fully compromise a Kubernetes cluster from the outside. I will also be speaking at KubeCon this year, where I will talk about securing clusters from risks introduced by third-party applications. He said, I'd happily buy you a nice bottle of wine to express my most sincere gratitude, Aww. but I'll settle for a SpinRite license Aww, instead. Oh, that's nice. He said, your show has changed my life. Steve, thanks. Now, just this morning, you, Leo... Ah, I was wondering if you got that. Okay. Yes. <laughs> forwarded a very heartwarming story from someone who said his career was catalyzed by this podcast. So as we start into year 18, I want to share what he wrote as an example 
of what is possible if anyone else out, out there might be in need of a bit of a nudge. So this person wrote, Leo, I must say I'm quite honored to have received a reply directly from you. I would like to share a brief story you and Steve might like to hear. In 2015, I recognized Steve's name on a list of podcasts. I knew it from back in the mid-late 90s when I used Shields Up frequently. I left IT after the dot-com bubble around 2002-ish. I followed a path in science, but ultimately I couldn't find a good job in that field. I was in poverty, on Medicaid, and in significant debt. It wasn't just me. I met my wife, and our son was just born during this time. It was rough. I listened to Security Now and the ad for IT Pro TV. I signed up, studied, and passed the CCNA. In a matter of days, I had a good-paying job as a network engineer. I have since moved on into cybersecurity getting a CISSP. I now work at a job I love, and my family is able to live debt-free with good health care and everything else that goes with this terrific career. Yay. I, I have you and Steve to thank for this. Well, and of course, his own initiative, too. He says, your show made this field approachable and fun. Words cannot begin to express my gratitude and appreciation. You guys change lives. Please keep up the great work, Michael. Thank you. So, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Michael, yeah. for sharing your story. You know, the field of cybersecurity truly is a growth industry. There is a crying need for trained cybersecurity professionals. And, boy, is it interesting and fun. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, anybody else? who's looking for something to do, uh, you can follow in the footsteps of these guys. Okay. I'm, just, I'm not crying. You're crying. Okay. I know. I got, <clears throat> got choked up <throat> the first time I read it. I know. So. It's really, it was a beautiful, yeah. but you know, I have yeah. to say every time, and I know you know this too, but every time we go out, we meet people, uh, I hear these stories again and again. And so thank you for the job you do, Steve. And I always tell them, it's not us, it's you, but thank you for, you know, letting us be part of your life, and I'm glad we could Wouldn't help. be happening, Leo, if it weren't for you, so. No. <sighs> okay, let's, uh, what do you want to do now? <laughs> <laughs> let's tell our listeners about our last okay, sponsor, see, gonna... <laughs> whether it, see whether it also is Another inspiration. Reason. Oh, my goodness. Uh, all right. <sighs> you, you know, I tell you what, uh, we don't do this for the money, particularly. Uh, we do it because it is—it's uh, a privilege and an honor, and it's something we really enjoy. I know that I'm, I'm not saying anything you don't uh, feel, but it is always nice. It is always nice to to hear from people uh, and know that we've made somewhat of a difference. So, thank you very much for those kind words. Now, I will mention another fine sponsor. As I find the end, uh, here we here we are. Our show today brought to you by oh yeah yep yep another one, Melissa, Melissa. Poor data quality. I'll tell you what, poor data quality can bite any business in the behind. It can cost you money. In fact, organizations 
on average $15 million a year due to poor data quality. It can cost them customer uh, appreciation and ultimately cost you customers. I mean, imagine you're on a customer service call and you address somebody by the wrong title or you say, oh, yeah, uh, you live in Florida, right? No, I live in Minnesota. Dude, (laughs) you're going to lose the customer's trust. And, of course, the longer poor quality data stays in your system, the more losses you could accumulate. To ensure your business is successful, your customer information has to be accurate. That's what Melissa does. They're the leading provider of global data quality and address management solutions. You need Melissa's Identity Solutions, their real-time identity verification service for all kinds of things. Identity ID and document verification, age authentication, global watch list screening. This may be a compliance issue for you. AML, KYC, yes. You can easily tailor uh, Melissa's service to your specific sign-up process, to your risk management requirements to ensure fast onboarding or e-commerce checkout while still protecting your organization against fraud. With Melissa, you not only reduce risk and ensure compliance, you keep customers happy. 2.1 billion clean validated records. That's a lot. Ensure compliance in AML, anti-money laundering, politically exposed persons, uh, PEP, Bank Secrecy Act, BSA, and all those other regulations your business might have to adhere to score and target customers with detailed demographic and firmographic data appends, complete customer records, add missing names or addresses or phone numbers and email addresses. And of course, Melissa treats your data as, as as important as I'm sure you treat it. They undergo continuous security audits. They're SOC 2 compliant, HIPAA compliant, GDPR compliant. Address verification services can verify addresses for 240-plus countries and territories at the point of entry in real time. Addresses, emails, phone numbers, names. Also, data deduping. Their Melissa's uh, data matching uh, system will eliminate clutter, eliminate duplicates, increase the accuracy of your database, and reduce postage and mailing costs. Melissa can be on-prem, it can be in the cloud, it can be SaaS, it can be a secure FTP upload and download. They have an API so you can add it to your own customer service software or your e-commerce software. They can do batch address cleaning, process an entire address list for accuracy and completeness. They can do identity verification, which not only uh, helps you with compliance, it keeps customers happy and reduces your risk. They do geocoding. You can convert addresses into longitude and latitude. They can verify emails, remove 95% of bad email addresses from your database. You can even use them on iOS and Android. They have an app, Lookups, it's called. Look for it. The Lookups app will let you search addresses, names, and more right at your fingertips on your device. Make sure your customer contact data is up to date. Try Melissa's APIs in the developer portal. It's easy to log on, sign up, and start playing in the API sandbox 24-7. Get started today with 1,000 records cleaned for free. And Melissa.com slash twit. Melissa.com slash twit. That way, by the way, Steve was another thing Michael said. He says, I like listening to the ads while I'm at work. I like hearing that geeky stuff in the background. Okay, but we do have ad-free versions of the show. Uh, if you want them, you can buy the individual Security Now episodes for two ninety nine a month. Uh, or you could pay seven ninety nine and get everything ad free in Club Twit. Go to twit.tv slash club twit. There's also a Discord server. We do have a book club. I'm gonna promote this uh this new book 
uh, from David uh, uh, um, the, Dennis Taylor. Dennis Taylor. That's it. Yeah, uh, we, this, we were we 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 should mention that because we were talking about it before we for the book recording. Club. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that, you didn't uh, mention it in the show. No, oh, it was before. Yeah, yeah. This is the guy who did the Baba Verse, Mister Baba trilogy yes. of four books, and uh, uh, I was planning to be reading something else, but one of our listeners said, uh, "You know how much you like the Baba Verse." Uh, he wrote something else called the Singularity Trap. And I was talking to Leo before the show. I have not been able to put it down. I've been reading it during the ad reads. <laughs> no. The- oh, you're going to finish it before the show's over. <laughs> well, I'm going to finish it tonight, unfortunately. Nice. It is oh, nice. so fun. Fantastic. So it it, it is good. You know, it, it, it's Kindle Unlimited. So if you are a, are a, a, a reader, uh, it won't even cost you anything in in the same way oh, that the Babaverse oh, books good. didn't. Oh, nice. Okay, uh, good. And you, and you learned that it's got the same guy reading it as uh, who read Ray, the Babaverse Ray Porter's for fantastic. Audible, yeah. and everyone was raving about about the the, audi- the Audible side yes. of the Babaverse. Yes. So anyway, it's called The Singularity Trap. It is the same style, the same wit. Uh, it's like really fun, and I and it's a book where you have no idea what is going to happen next. It's a whole new concept that we've not. It's not a rehash of let let's go you know attack the aliens thing. It's a new idea and uh, uh, really cool. So I, this one I can. I mean I'm at sadly at ninety three percent or something of the book and. I'm going to be sad to have it end. And then I went looking for more stuff, but he's not written anything else. He's going to do some more Bender books on, on the Babaverse side, so I guess, next. So anyway, uh, okay, the Bumblebee Loader. Uh, it's recently become a big deal on the malware front. Symantec in June wrote Bumblebee, a recently developed malware loader, has quickly become a key component in a wide range of cybercrime attacks and appears to have replaced a number of older loaders, which suggests that it's the work of established actors and that the transition to Bumblebee was pre-planned. By analysis of three other tools used in recent attacks involving Bumblebee, Symantec's Threat Hunter team has linked this tool to a number of ransomware operations, including Conti, Quantum and Mount Locker. The tactics, techniques, and procedures used in these older attacks support the hypothesis that Bumblebee may have been introduced as a replacement loader for TrickBot and Bazaar Loader, since there is some overlap between recent activity involving Bumblebee and older attacks linked to these loaders. And even earlier than that, on the 7th of June, Cybel, the security firm we were just talking about last week, wrote, In March 2022, a new malware named Bumblebee was discovered and reportedly distributed via spam campaigns. Researchers identified that Bumblebee is a replacement for Bizarre Loader malware, which was delivered, which has delivered Conti ransomware in the past. Bumblebee acts as a downloader and delivers known attack frameworks and open-source tools such as Cobalt Strike, Shellcode, Silver, Metterpreter, etc. It also downloads other types of malware such as ransomware, Trojans, and more. And last Wednesday... 
the global security firm Cyber Reason, based in Boston, Massachusetts, with offices in London, Tel Aviv, Tokyo, France, Germany, South Africa, and Singapore, published in their Malicious Life blog a detailed technical description of the operation of this extremely dangerous new entry onto the malware scene. They titled their report, Bumblebee Loader, The High Road to Enterprise Domain Control. And this podcast would be remiss if we didn't take some time to bring our listening audience up to speed about this emergent threat. So Cyber Reasons Report explains that they analyzed a case that involved a bumblebee loader infection, which allowed them to describe in detail the attack chain from the initial bumblebee infection to the compromise of the entire enterprise network. Okay, so let's begin with a couple bullet points to set the stage. The majority of the infections with Bumblebee, they said, we have observed, started by end users executing link, you know, .lnk files, still hasn't gone away, which use a system binary to load the malware. Distribution of the malware is done by phishing emails, with an attachment or a link to the malicious archive containing Bumblebee. And I'll be expanding on all of this here in a minute. They said Bumblebee operators conduct intensive reconnaissance activities and redirect the output of executed commands to files for exfiltration. The attackers compromised Active Directory and leveraged confidential data such as users' logins and passwords for lateral movement. The time it took between initial access and Active Directory compromise was less than two days, and I'll be sharing a timeline breakdown in a minute. Cyber Reason GSOC, that's their Global Security Operations Center, has observed threat actors transitioning from Bazaar Loader, TrickBot, and Iced ID to Bumblebee, which seems to be an active development and generally the loader of choice for many threat actors. Attacks involving Bumblebee must be treated as critical. Based on GSOC findings, the next step for the threat actors is ransomware deployment, and this loader is known for ransomware delivery. Okay, so let's take this step by step. A spear phishing email is received containing an archive or a link to a URL link to an external source to download the archive. As we know, the malware is encapsulated in an archive to prevent the archive's contents from being tagged with the mark of the web, you know, MOTW, which would complicate its execution. The user extracts the archive and mounts the resulting ISO, you know, .iso image. Newer releases of Windows will happily mount ISO images, thus exposing the ISO's file system files. The content of the mounted ISO image is a .lnk file, which executes the Bumblebee payload upon user interaction. 
So the operators behind an instance of Bumblebee host malicious websites that implement a drive-by download. To infect the system, an end user has to first manually decompress the archive containing the ISO file. On the other hand, if it's, you know, a zip, Windows will do that for you now too. Mount the file and then execute the Windows shortcut LNK. This is all done as part of a phishing email where the user fully believes that they are doing the right thing, that installing this or that is needed or updating something that's needed before they can proceed. So the user is without question unwittingly complicit in the success of this entire penetration and intrusion. All of the other mechanics is about avoiding everything the user's enterprise security people have done to keep bad stuff out, despite what dumb stuff their users may do. So, the LNK file has an embedded command to load and execute the Bumblebee Dynamic Link Library, the Bumblebee DLL, using the already and always present ODBC conf, ODBCconf.exe, in what has become the increasingly popular living off the land approach of using what's already available in the system, and these days plenty is on, in modern systems. So in this context, odbcconf.exe is called a LOL bin. A response, which is has the extension .rsp, a response file is also used where the, the some Bumblebee-specific name .rsp has the reference, contains the reference to the Bumblebee DLL. So specifically, the link files target property contains the string odbcconf.exe space hyphen f space and then this this uh, bumblebee specific name ending in dot rsp the response file and the dot rsp file contains a reference to the dump the again the bumblebee specific name dot dll which is the bumblebee payload now if anyone's curious, you can see this for yourself. In any version of Windows, open a command prompt and type odbcconf space forward slash question mark. And you'll receive a pop-up from odbcconf showing a list of its command line options. And sure enough, among them is slash f which takes a response file as its argument. Basically, it's a command stream which is fed into odbcconf. So in this case, this loads and runs the bumblebee.dll, at which point all is lost because a hostile executable has made it into the user's system and has been started. The bumblebee dll injects code into multiple running processes in order to establish a strong foothold on infected endpoints. And the newly launched 
odbcconf.exe process creates Windows management instrumentation calls to spawn two new processes from the WMI PRIVSE.exe, which is the Windows Management Instrumentation Provider Service. Once again, both of these newly spawned processes are existing Windows executables where malicious code is dynamically injected into their process space once they've been started. So the first of the two is WABMIG.exe, that's the Microsoft Contacts import tool. It's injected with Metterpreter agent code. Metterpreter is a Metasploit attack payload that provides an interactive shell from which an attacker can explore the target machine and execute code. It's deployed using in-memory DLL injection. As a result, Metterpreter resides entirely in memory and writes nothing to disk. The second Windows, the second existing Windows XE that is spawned and then injected into is WAB.exe. That's Microsoft's address book app. After being launched, it receives an injection of the Cobalt Strike Beacon, which we've covered. We did a podcast on it a while ago. Bumblebee performs privilege escalation by loading an exploit for CVE 2020-1472, zero logon, which we talked about at the time, into rundll32.exe. Bumblebee uses a user account control, you know, UAC bypass technique, to deploy post-exploitation tools with elevated privileges on infected machines. Specifically, it uses an existing trusted binary, again, part of Windows, fodhelper.exe. This prevents Windows from showing a UAC window when it's launched. fodhelper is the executable used by Windows to manage features in Windows settings. Again, living off the land. And it uses this to bypass any appearance of what's going on. This FOD helper is exploited to run cmd.exe forward slash c space and then run dll32.exe. Then we give it the DLL, which is the a path to the Cobalt Strike DLL, comma, and then main proc, where the Cobalt Strike DLL is the Cobalt Strike Framework Beacon and main proc is the exported is the is the exported function which Cobalt Strike exports in its DLL in order to run. As we know, Cobalt Strike is an adversary simulation framework used to assist in red team attack operations. Unfortunately, bad guys use it to conduct actual post intrusion malicious activities. It's a powerful modular framework with an extensive set of features that are used to, you know, to you can do command execution, process injection, credential theft, and more. And speaking of credential theft, after obtaining its foothold and elevating itself to system privilege without any further user interaction or UAC permission, 
Bumblebee performs credential theft through two methods. The first method is to trigger a memory dump of Windows LSASS process. LSASS is Windows Local Security Authority Subsystem Service. Within LSASS's memory footprint are the keys to the kingdom, including both domain and local usernames and passwords. They're all sitting in the memory space of the LSASS process. So Bumblebee dumps the memory of this process using procdump64.exe, also living off the land, to obtain access to this sensitive information. The second method of credential theft used by Bumblebee is registry hive extraction using good old reg.exe. The HKey local machine SAM, SAM, which is the security account manager database, is where Windows stores information about user accounts. That's dumped. HKey local machine security, which is the local security authority, the LSA, stores user logins and their LSA secrets. And HK Local Machine System contains keys that could be used to decrypt and encrypt the LSA secret and SAM database. Bumblebee issues three commands of the form reg.exe space save space HKLM backslash SAM and then a path to the program where that registry hive should be saved. In this case, the, uh, they give the example C colon backslash program data backslash SAM dot SAVE. Then the same command for backslash system and for backslash security, saving their dumps into system dot save and security dot save. So that creates a trio of files containing the dump of those three system-critical registry hives. Then the LSASS dump and those three registry hives are all compressed using 7Z and exfiltrated back to Command Central. At that point, the human operators behind Bumblebee process the retrieved credentials offline, attempting to extract clear text passwords. The observed time between credential theft and the next activity is about three hours. So it, so this stuff all goes back to wherever. Somebody ruminates on it, figures out what the username and passwords are, but basically reverse engineers clear text, and then comes back three hours later. After the attackers have gained a foothold within the organization's network, they gather information using tools such as NL test, ping, NetView, task list, and AD find to collect a wide range of information related to the organization. They collect information such as the domain names, users, hosts, and domain controllers. We talked about AD find in episodes 789 and 90 back in October of 2020. It is a powerful Active Directory exploration tool meant to aid in the administration of Active Active Directory systems by regular Active Directory admins. Unfortunately, it's been turned against those administrators. Bumblebee uses Cobalt Strike Agent for lateral movement. Their analysis, that is, 
the uh, the cyber reasons analysis observed multiple connections from the cobalt strike process to internal addresses on RDP, you know, remote desktop protocol over TCP port 3389. And of course, now they've got credentials for all that stuff, so they're able to log in. After lateral movement, the attacker persists on the organization's network using the commercial remote management software AnyDesk. After the attacker has obtained a highly privileged username and password, they access the volume shadow service Shadow Copy, which is, again, built in, Windows built in facility to create backup copies and snapshots of computer files or volumes while they are in use. So Bumblebee accesses the remote Active Directory machines using the Windows Management Instrumentation command line, WMIC, and creates a shadow copy using the VSS admin command. In addition, the attacker steals the ntds.dit file from the domain controller. ntds.dit is a database that stores Active Directory data, including information about user objects, groups, and group membership. And the file also stores the password hashes for all users in the domain. In order to obtain maximum privileges on the Active Domain uh, on the Active Directory domain, the threat actor executes the following four steps. Creates a shadow copy of the machine files volume. Lists all available shadow copies, storing the result in a file. Copies the Active Directory database, that ntds.dit file, as well as registry hives containing credentials and sensitive data from the shadow copy compresses the output directory for exfiltration. And finally, the threat actor uses a domain administrator account obtained previously to move laterally across multiple systems. After initial connection, they create a local user and exfiltrate data using the open source rclone software. Wikipedia describes rclone Arclone is an open-source, multi-threaded, command-line computer program to manage or, mi- or migrate content on cloud and other high-latency storage. Its capabilities include sync, transfer, crypt, cache, union, compress, and mount. The Arclone website lists supported backends, including S3 and Google Drive. In the instance observed and monitored by CyberReason, the R-Clone EXE process transferred approximately 50 gigabytes of data to an endpoint with an IP address over TCP port 22, SSH, located somewhere in the U.S. So what does all this tell us? The first and most obvious thing we've learned is that you do, you do not want to have your enterprise stung by the bumblebee loader. It's definitely, it'll definitely ruin your whole day. But speaking of day, Cyber Reason compiled the entire event into a timeline. Taking everything we've just stepped through, here's how it stretches out in time. So we have T0 
at initial access. You know, when the unwitting user uh, clicks the link, thinks they're doing the right thing, opens the archive, mounts the ISO, runs the, 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 the program inside. Actually, it's a link file that will be contained in the ISO. Reconnaissance using NL test net and who am I commands at T O T zero plus thirty minutes. When we get to four hours, we're at command and control loading the metterpreter agent. Uh, also at four hours is privilege escalation using the zero login uh, uh, exploit. Two hours later at T0 plus 6, we have command and control with Cobalt Strike Beacon execution. Also at the same time, credential theft through the registry hive. Reconnaissance uh, 30 minutes later at 6 hours plus 30 using AD find, the Active Directory find, ping, and curl. At Okay, now we have a big jump. At T0 plus 19 hours is... The credential theft and privilege escalation, that's when we get the LSASS memory dump with proc dump 64.exe. That was at TO plus 19 hours. At 22 hours, so three hours later, credential theft. Using that, that's where ntds.dit exfiltration occurs with Active Directory full privilege. Two hours later, now we're at one day later, 24 hours later than the initial uh, T0, is lateral movement using Cobalt Strike Sox Tunnel uh, uh, over RDP. And data exfiltration using R clone, presumably finished at T0 plus three days. So a full 72 hours from start to finish. So this thing, as I said, isn't over before it starts it does take some time there there is a human in the loop at that point where the registry hives and the lsass dump have been have been compressed with 7z and sent back to headquarters three hours goes by before they've got that figured out and then they come back to do some real damage using all of the 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 uh, credentials that they've been able to obtain so one lesson we learn from all of this is why local privilege escalation vulnerabilities form such a crucial part of this and so many attack chains. Remote code execution sounds like the worst possible nightmare, and indeed it's not good. But none of that was needed here. If malware were truly constrained within a user's low-privilege account, much less damage could be done. But the old saying, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride, reminds us that wishing won't make it so. With everything we've seen of the continuing and apparently worsening trouble Microsoft is having securing Windows, which they refuse to just leave as is, uh, you know, and fix because it's obvious, you know, they can't do both. There is virtually zero chance that once a single piece of malicious software gets loose inside a user's machine, that the rest of the organization will not fall. 
And this brings us back to that first fatal click. That innocent action taken by a user on the inside that initiated the collapse of even the most carefully constructed enterprise's security. Those in charge of their organization's security must be living in a state of constant terror over what any one of their employees might do next. Rightly and so. what we see here, <laughs> yes. yes, And what we see here with Bumblebee Loader is exactly what transpires. Mm. It's interesting. It's educational once in a while to go through the step-by-step of, of how these uh, things work. It's fascinating. I think frankly. it's important because it helps make it real for yeah, people. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you know, oh, that happened to somebody else. It's like, here's exactly how this could happen to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. Uh, if you haven't seen the show notes, this would be a good time to get them and look at that step-by-step and really understand what, what the threat is. Uh, the show notes are at grc.com. That's Steve's website. Uh, you also can get, of course, a copy of the audio. He's got 16 kilobit audio, 64 kilobit audio, and very nice transcripts as well, uh, pl- plus the show notes. I think the transcripts and show notes are going to give you all the additional detail you need. While you're at GRC, pick up a copy of SpinWrite, Steve's Bread and Butter, uh, the world's best mass storage, maintenance, and recovery utility. Version 6 is current, but if you buy 6 today, you get 6.1 when it comes out, and Steve's working hard on that um, all the time, I know, except when he's reading this book, and then, you know, all bets are off. Uh, <laughs> he's almost done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he's a fast reader. Don't worry. <laughs> I am, actually. Uh, uh, after the fact, you can also get on-demand versions at our site, twit.tv slash sn. We've got uh, audio and video for you. I don't know why you'd want video, but you could get it. Uh, well, I know why. So you can see the video of uh, our uh, our image of the week. That's why. Yeah, the satellite's yeah. moving. It's a video. Spooky. It's yeah. spooky. Yeah. Um, you also, let's see, what else? Oh, there's a YouTube channel you can watch. In fact, a good way to share clips is on the YouTube channel because they have the feature to do the little clip thing. Uh, And, of course, you can also subscribe in your favorite podcast player and get it automatically the minute it's available. Just search for Security Now. It's been around, as you know, 18 years now. Everybody should have a copy of it somewhere. (laughs) Keep it up. Uh, That's actually how Michael first uh, wrote to us. He wrote me a note saying, how come I only see the last 10 episodes in the in the feed and we used to do that to keep the feed from getting big if we all had 885 episodes in there it'd be hundreds and hundreds of megabytes uh and we don't want you to have to download that on a regular basis that's kind of how feed feeds work you know you download it each time so we keep it to 10 titles but all the titles are available at steve's site and uh, our site you want to watch us do it live get the first edition the very first edition while the ink is still wet just go, uh, it's it's easy to do. Just go to live.twit.tv of a Tuesday afternoon, around about 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern, 20.30 UTC, right after Mac Break Weekly. Uh, people who are watching live often chat with us live at irc.twit.tv or in the Club Twit uh, Discord. After the fact, you can chat, and people often do, in our uh, community forums. Steve's got his own forums at grc.com. We also have ours at twit.community for all of the shows. And uh, we also have a uh, Mastodon instance, which is a federated Twitter without all the security flaws. Uh, That is at twit.social. Both are free to join. Uh, But I do approve everybody to keep the spammers out, so it might take a day or two for me to to let you in. But 
please do knock. Twit.community or twit.social. Steve, have a great week. Go finish your book. Thank you, my friend. That will it will not, unfortunately it will not live out the night because <laughs> I'm not going to be able to put it down, and I'm close enough to the end. Although even at this point, I I'm on pins and needles. I have no idea what's going to happen. You're almost so, done, and you still don't know what's going to happen. That's a good. It's sign. really That's it's exciting. really good. Yeah. You're well, I just bought it and downloaded it, so I'll be listening uh, cool. soon. Actually, as soon as I finish uh, Stacy's book club, Clara and the Sun, which is also excellent. Um, it's about an artificial intelligence, an artificial friend that you bring into your house to be your companion. And it's told from her point of view, so it's really fascinating. And that's our book club uh, Thursday, 9 a.m. Pacific, uh, for the club Twit members. Thank you, Steve. Have a great week. We'll see you next Everybody, time. Everybody, righto. Bye. Security now.